0: When we were planning this year's Christmas series, we started with a list of well over 30 names that can be used to speak of Jesus. And while almost all of the names on our list are recognized as ways to speak of Jesus now, it struck me that only two names on the list were names that Jesus actually used regularly in reference to himself. Now he did say things like, I am the door, and I am the way, and I am the truth and the life. He did say things like that. But I'm certain that Jesus never intended for us to speak to him directly using those names. Never say, hey door, or hey life. Those are names that we now use to speak of him. But I also found it interesting that the two names that Jesus did publicly use to refer to himself, at first they sound somewhat similar. The two names are the Son of Man and the Son of God. When you read the Gospels, and those are the four books in the Bible that tell us about the life of Jesus, you will find that Jesus used this name, the Son of Man, all the time to speak of himself. And this name, which, let's be honest, is somewhat difficult for us to get our arms around calling someone the Son of Man. It did have a very specific meaning to the Jews in the first century. And the meaning was tied directly to the Jewish desire to have a, a Messiah. And when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, it most likely sparked hope in the hearts of the Jewish people, hope that a man was going to come soon, a man with power from heaven, who would liberate the Jewish people from the Romans, and he would set up the kingdom of God. When Jesus called himself the son of man, everybody's eyes got a little wider and they were happy about hearing him say, call himself that. But when, when Jesus called himself the son of God, that was a different story. Jesus calling himself the Son of God was a statement that bordered on blasphemy. Now, I'm going to take that back. When Jesus called himself the Son of God, it was blasphemy. That is, unless it was true. And here's why. To say that you were the son of anyone in the ancient world carried a much stronger weight than it does in ours. The ancient people believed, and particularly in the Jewish world, they believed that a son's life was made up of the same essence as their father's life. In other words, to see a son was literally, in their thinking, to see that son's father. They thought of them as the same. Now we have a little bit of this kind of thinking in our world. If a son looks a lot like his dad, then we do make assumptions about them being alike in some ways, and if they do act alike, we'll say that, well, that apple didn't fall far from the tree, but we don't think that any honor that a father might have, something that he did in his life that was worthy of being lifted up and honored, we don't think that we should give the same kind of honor to his son. And if a son brings us a message, if the son comes to us and says, I have some information from you, for you. We don't assume that it came from his father and that it was as if the father was sending the message to us through the son. And if a son comes to visit us, we, we don't, we're not expected to receive that son into our home in the same way that we would receive his honorable father. We think of them as very different in our world and we certainly don't feel that we're to show the son all of the respect and the deference and the favor and the esteem and the reverence and the veneration if you will, those kinds of things that might be due to the father. We just don't think like that about a son but that's exactly how people thought about things in Jesus's day. And these assumptions about the relationships between fathers and sons were so deeply ingrained into the first century Jewish mind that you can see why it was thought of as blasphemy worthy of death for Jesus to refer to himself as the son of God. And we have tons of examples of the Jewish people speaking openly in the plural about being the children of God. And they always prayed in the same way that Jesus started his prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father. They would talk in the plural when referring to God. But no one ever referred to God as their Father, as in their literal Father, my Father, as if they had some special relationship with God. Again, this was blasphemy, claiming to deserve all of the respect and the honor that God had coming to him, unless it was true. Now Jesus being directly called the Son of God actually first happens in the Gospel of Luke's account of the Christmas story. There we find the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary. And says, your son that you are about to have will be called the son of the most high. Now we can all tell that this is an indirect way to say that Jesus was the son of God. But it it sounds a bit shrouded. It's not quite saying he's the son of God, the son of the most high. But then in a moment later, right after Gabriel had said that, he comes right out and says directly, He says this, the baby to be born to you will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And I'm sure that this is one of the many things that Mary pondered in her heart. My son called the Son of God? And The next place in the Scripture where we find references to Jesus being the Son of God comes in the only story that we have of Jesus' childhood. Jesus was 12 years old. He'd gone to Jerusalem for uh, the celebration of the Passover. And when he was 12, he went missing for three days. And his parents went searching and searching for him, and they finally found him. And he was in the temple discussing important things with the temple leaders. And Jesus' response, this 12-year-old boy, who being found by his parents was, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house about my father's business? Now the fact that we're told by Luke that Jesus was 12 is a very important detail. For you see that the concept of the way things worked in the Jewish world at that time was that you were not responsible for your own sin until you were 13, 13. So if Jesus had just been one year older, him saying, my father's house, my father's business, in other words, claiming to be God's son would have been a crime worthy of stoning. 12-year-old Jesus, was in essence claiming that he deserved all the respect and the deference and the favor and the esteem and the reverence and the veneration, which is a word that means worship. He deserved all of that because he, God was his father. It's no wonder that Luke's parents, Luke tells us that, that Jesus' parents didn't understand what he was saying to them, and I'm sure that the religious leaders all looked at one another and said, if this kid comes back next year when he's 13 and he says these same things, we have a problem on our hands. The truth is that 18 years later, when Jesus started his ministry, he openly declared, just as he had when he was 12, that he was the Son of God by calling God his Father all the time. This is why so many people who were opposed to Jesus frequently accused him of things by saying this. They would say, so you think you're the Son of God, do you? Go ahead and do something miraculous to prove it. They knew that he was claiming by saying my father, that he was the son of God. Jesus never gave in to their taunts when they said, do something to prove it. But again, he was never shy about talking about his father in a way that said he was the son of the God with two capital T's. Now, these days, people talk about everyone being a child of God all the time. We're all children of God. and I'm not opposed to that. But again, in Jesus's day, for Jesus to make this kind of claim and mean it literally in the ways that they talked about sonship, I'm just saying Jesus better be telling the truth. Unfortunately, we don't just need to take Jesus's word for it here when he calls himself the son of God. Here's why. There are very few events from Jesus's life that we find recorded in all four of the gospels, and yet all four of the gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that when Jesus was baptized, everyone present heard the voice of God speaking. When Jesus came up out of the water, and what God said in that moment was this, this is my son in whom I am greatly pleased. And this my son here isn't some general statement about Jesus being just one of, the, of humanity, one of the people of humanity that's my son. No, it's a very, very direct and specific way to talk about his own son. God the Father, when talking about Jesus said publicly to a large crowd, this is my son. And the disciple John, when he was writing his first letter to the early followers of Jesus, he leaned into that moment of Jesus' baptism when he said these words. He said, Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. And since we believe human testimony... Surely, we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. God has testified about His Son, and all who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about His Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. I just got to say that's pretty direct. That's pretty direct. And also a number of years later, when this same John who wrote those words we just read was writing his story about the life of Jesus, the book we call the Gospel of John now, he not only gave us a good number of examples of Jesus saying directly, he didn't just say, my father, he says, I am the Son of God, but he also gave us a number of examples of people who had come to the belief that they knew that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, listen to what Martha, Jesus' friend, declared in John eleven twenty seven. 27. She said, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Now, I just have to say, in that place and in that time, no one in that world would have publicly said anything like that unless they were 100% certain that it was true. Because making that kind of claim about another person could get you killed. So what do we do with all of this, especially now during the Christmas season? Well, I think for me, the first thing is that as I celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, it's important for me to never forget who is in that manger. Encased in that tiny body, encased in that tiny body is the very essence of his father, who is the God of the universe. Jesus did not fall close to the tree. Jesus is the tree. Even in his babiness, he is someone who deserves all the respect, all the deference, all the favor, all the esteem, all the reverence, and all the worship that is due his Father. And secondly, The message that this baby eventually brought into the world should be received in the exact same ways we would receive words that were spoken out of the throne of heaven. When this son speaks, his father speaks. And the third thing is is this for me, that it's important to never forget that Jesus is the one who has made it possible for us to now call ourselves the daughters and the sons of God. We are members of a royal family. We are sisters and brothers with Jesus. We have the same father and our father and our brother deserve all the respect and all of the deference and all of the favor and all of the esteem and the reverence and the worship that is due to God and His Son, Jesus. As Martha said, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who has come into the world from His Father. And my goodness, what a difference that has made in the world.
1: You know those times when you're at home and you're just casually reading the dictionary (laughs) and then a section jumps out at you and suddenly you're like, okay, dictionary, hallelujah, yes. That will preach. You know those times. This is one of those times. I'm preaching the dictionary this morning, hallelujah. All right, if Jesus is our redeemer, What does that word even mean, redeemer? Well, if you Google it, if you search the words redeemer definition, here's what comes up. Redeemer is a noun. It means a person who redeems someone or something, or Christ, the redeemer. Now I get a little annoyed when I am casually reading through the dictionary, and the root of the word is in the definition of that word. Like if a redeemer, is a person who redeems, well then we have to ask what does redeem mean? It is a word that we are hearing less and less of these days. In fact, we see less and less of it even in our own modern translations of the Bible. Now that's it. My favorite translation, the new King James uses that word all the time. All the time. If you've been following the podcast for any length of time, you know I love, I love this translation. And I love it because my first Bible was a New King James Bible. It was this one, actually. The New King James translation was first issued in the holy year of our Lord, 1982, which happens to be the year I was born. See, so we go together, we go together. Maybe that's why it's my favorite, or maybe it's like your first car. You're always gonna reserve a special place in your heart for that first car, that 1995 Dodge Spirit that got handed down from your grandmother to your brother to you. That is what the New King James is to me. I'm sentimental about it, I admit it. And yeah, it can sound a bit old-timey at times, but hear me out. I looked up a few scriptures in the New Testament that use the Greek word for redeem or redeemed. I looked them up in the old-timey New King James, and I looked them up in our New Living Translation. That's the translation we use the most here at Grace. And what I found was pretty interesting. Take Luke chapter 24, verse 21, for example. After Jesus' resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus, and he comes across a group of people who don't recognize him in his resurrected form. And they're going on and on about this Jesus of Nazareth, how he was a prophet and a miracle worker and an incredible teacher, but to their total dismay, he had just been crucified. They say in verse 21, in the New King James Version, they say, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. (laughs) Redeem. That's the word that the New King James uses for the Greek word lutroo. But our house Bible, the NLT, says it a different way. It says, we'd hope that he was the Messiah who'd come to rescue Israel. It uses the word rescue in place of the word redeem. And it's not wrong, it's not wrong. The NLT is a great translation, that's why we use it. It helps to break down these concepts further so that we can understand it better. Another word for redeem is rescue. A redeemer is one who rescues. Here's another example from the book of Titus. The New King James Version says that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The NLT says he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. Another word for redeem is free. A redeemer is one who sets free, who liberates. I'll give you one more example. First Peter chapter one, verse 18 to 19. The New King James says knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The NLT says for you know that God paid a ransom to save you and it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. A redeemer is one who pays a ransom to save somebody else. Rescue, free, liberate, ransom, save. That is what Jesus, our redeemer, does. But there's so much more packed into this one word, this one name. When we read about the Lord being our redeemer in the Old Testament, Like in Isaiah 41, where we read, do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The Hebrew word for redeemer is ga'al. It refers to an element of ancient Hebrew law called a kinsman redeemer. It was the job of a kinsman redeemer to protect the interests of the family. And that could mean anything from making sure that his deceased brother's widow didn't become destitute, to avenging the death of a family member, if he had to, to making sure that land ownership remained in the family after somebody died. A kinsman redeemer protected the family. He got the family out of trouble. He rescued, he vindicated, and he didn't just vindicate, He avenged on behalf of his family. A kinsman redeemer brought restoration. When God is referring to himself as your redeemer, the holy one of Israel, he's telling his children, he's telling his family that he is their kinsman redeemer. He is their avenger and the one who will vindicate them. He is their protector and the one who will rescue and restore them. He alone is their redeemer and they need only to look to him for help. That is the prophecy that came through Isaiah in ancient times for the Israelites. And I love that for them. I love that for the Israelites, but what does that mean for us? Our answer is in Galatians, so if you would, grab a Bible, and turn to Galatians chapter four. We're gonna start at verse three. If you're using the NLT, the House Bible, that's page 973. And we'll put the scripture on the screen and we've got it in the app notes, but either way, I just want you to see this. Galatians chapter four, starting at verse three. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children, we were like slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us. Now, I'm gonna pause there. God sent Jesus to buy freedom for us. That's how the NLT puts it. But by now, I'm sure you can guess what this phrase, buy freedom, is translated to in other translations. God sent Jesus to redeem us, to redeem those who were under the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. God sent Jesus to redeem us, to adopt us as his very own children and to make us, all of us, his heirs. So, what does it mean to redeem? You know those times when you're at home flipping through the dictionary and suddenly a passage jumps out at you and you just start shouting hallelujah, come on and preach dictionary. Do you know those times? This is one of those times, this is one of those times, a redeemer redeems. Christ, our redeemer, redeems, and this is what redeem means. From the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, redeem, it's a verb that means to buy back, to repurchase. Has he bought you back, anyone? Has anyone here been repurchased by his blood? to get or to win back. To free from what distresses or harms, such as to free from captivity by payment of ransom. We sing about it all the time. His wounds have paid our ransom. We've been freed from captivity. To extricate from or to help overcome something detrimental. Have you ever sensed that he was with you, bringing you out, extricating you from, helping you through, helping you to overcome something detrimental? I have. I am a witness. That is what he does because he is our redeemer. Redeem, to release from blame or debt, to clear, to free from the consequences of sin. Come on, this is in the dictionary. Redeem to free from the consequences of sin, to change for the better, reform, repair, restore, to free from a lien, a debt, by payment of an amount secured thereby, to remove the obligation of by payment to exchange for something of value. I've been redeemed in exchange for something of the greatest value, his life in exchange for mine. I was not redeemed by something corruptible like silver or gold, but by his own precious blood. The blood of Jesus canceled my debt, repairs me, restores me, reforms me, and changes me for the better. Redeem to make good, fulfill, to atone for, to expiate. I did not know what that word meant. That word was new to me. It means to atone for guilt or sin. Come on, keep preaching, dictionary, keep preaching. To offset the bad effect of, to make worthwhile, to retrieve. My redeemer has retrieved me. Not long ago, I was lost. My sin, my own bad choices and mistakes had a terrible effect on my life, but the blood of my Redeemer offset the bad effects of my own sins and my own life choices. Hallelujah. The blood of my Redeemer canceled my debt. I don't even owe it anymore. Hallelujah. My Redeemer has changed me and is changing me for the better. He is still, even now, restoring me and repairing me because he has repurchased me with his precious blood. I belong to him. He vindicated me. He is my avenger, he is my protector, and he has bought me back, hallelujah. And he's come, (laughs) not just for me, he's come for you, to retrieve you, to repurchase you, to repair you and restore you to ransom, and yes, to reform you. He came for his church. He came for us. He came for me. And he most certainly came for you. He is here. Your redeemer has come to redeem you.
2: There is a great need for counselors in the world today. As a matter of fact, most people I know are in some type of counseling or therapy. Most of the connection requests we get at Grace, or at least many of them um, through email or in person or by phone are asking for um, a pastor to sit with them and give them some, some counsel or some next steps or, or to make a connection with a professional therapist or counselor out there. Yes, many, many people are searching for wise counsel in the world that we live in today, whether it be temporary for, for an issue or, or a circumstance, or whether it be long-term, maybe counseling that has no end. Someone to give them advice, help them to be better, to work through their past, to find ways to move on, to make next steps, to make the next right or best decision, to receive new ways of coping and communicating and behaving. In some respects, I would say that everybody, everybody probably needs a counselor. But just like with everything in this world, human counsel can only go so far. No counselor is perfect, although I know that there are a few of you out there that would argue that your counselor is pretty close to perfect. No, they're human. They have biases and, and flaws and preconceived notions. Yes, we all need a human counselor, but we're still in need of the wonderful counselor that Isaiah refers to in Isaiah chapter nine. And so did the people of Israel. They had not been wise. They had not sought out God. They had done things their own way. Isaiah says to them just a few chapters earlier in chapter five, verse 21, what sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. In Maron's favorite version, the new King, King James, it says it like this, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And in the message version, it says doom to you. The the book of Isaiah is is such a, a paradox of judgment and glimpses of hope. When a nation claims to be God's people but defiantly ignores his standards, it invites judgment. When a nation claims to be God's people but defiantly ignores his standards. That sounds familiar. I think there are are many Christians and even the church, the big C church at times, claims to be God's people and defiantly ignores his standards. Today, we do that as individuals. We think we're so clever. But in the midst of their unwise ways, their turning from God, Isaiah speaks a sign of hope. In the midst of our unwise ways and our turning from God, Isaiah speaks a sign of hope. 800 years prior to the event, Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel that the Messiah was coming to establish his kingdom, the incarnation. A child would be born through the line of David, just as God had promised David through Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. It says this, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name and I will secure his royal throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. And Isaiah shares in chapter nine, verse six, which is page 572 in your house Bibles or you can find it on your app, app. He shares in this chapter a vision of who this offspring of David, this Messiah will be look with me isaiah 9 verse 6 for a child is born to us a son is given to us the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace isaiah is saying to the people of israel that in the place of an unfaithful leader That might actually plunge the nation into more despair there will be lifted up an ideal leader that will bring an end to all the wars and establish an eternal kingdom based on justice and righteousness the names in verse 6 express the remarkable nature of this individual and the saving character of his reign he this child born to us this son given is the ultimate expression of the truth that God is with us. Emmanuel that Marin preached about a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah seven fourteen, Not for our destruction, but for our redemption. Redeemer that Marin just spoke about. Who is this child? He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These traits of Jesus, manifest the presence of God in our midst. God is with us in all these beautiful ways. In contrast to the, to the unwise ways of his people and the foolishness of the world around us, what did it mean for Jesus to enter in as wonderful Counselor? The Hebrew word for wonderful is pala. It indicates something uncommon, out of the ordinary, extraordinary, incomprehensible. It is beyond our understanding, outside human explanation. He is both God and man. He is wonderful, incomprehensible. We can't even grasp how wonderful he is and he is counselor, the Hebrew word yoetz, which means to advise, to counsel someone with great wisdom. Isaiah reiterates this again in chapter 11, verse two, out of the stump of David's family will come a branch, and that branch is Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then in 28, 29, Isaiah says this, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. He is a wonder of a counselor, an amazing advisor, ready in plans, great in marvels, wise and trusted ruler, planner of wonders. He is the one that derives the plan. He is wondrous counsel. Unfailing in the depth of its wisdom. It is only His wisdom, that true wisdom, that would know these things. In weakness is strength, in surrender is victory, and in death is life. And the people saw this very thing in him. Even when he was a 12-year-old boy, Jesus astounded the Jewish rabbis with his teaching. Luke recorded this in Luke 2.40. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. In Matthew seven twenty-eight through 29, it says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority quite unlike their teachers of religious law. He offered more than any human could then and he does now. In John 2:25 it said this, no one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. He is qualified like no human counselor is because he knows us. He knows every inch of us. Do you remember the Mark series, Known, uh, where we shared stories uh, from the Gospel of Mark about how Jesus knew those people. He knew what they needed before they could even ask for it. He knows what we need before we even know what we need. He knows us deeply. In what Barry talked about last weekend about Alpha and Omega, Jesus isn't only present with us at this time. He's present at every time. Every time in our lives right now. He knows us deeply, fully, and is with us always in every moment. He knows what we are going through Hebrews 4.15, the high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He is wonderful counselor because he knows us deeply. He knows what we have gone through and what we are going through. He knows what we face. God came to earth in human form. He humbled himself and came as a baby and lived as a man so he could know us the most complete and deepest way. And then he left us the Holy Spirit as our guide, our continued counsel, John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. We have all that we need in him. There could be no counselor anywhere as wonderful, as incomprehensible. Don't stop going to a human counselor, okay? I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. We need them. But you have access to the wonderful counselor. You have access to the amazing advisor beyond human understanding, incomprehensible, the incarnate Christ, the God who became flesh, who knows you intimately and sees every part of you and understands you and knows you in ways that you cannot fathom. And he speaks to you If you are listening, he speaks to you through those human counselors, through your pastors, through the people in your life, your spiritual community, through scripture, through your time with him, through prayer. He is changing you. He is transforming you. If you will allow him, he will do it. You can learn how to be better. You can learn ways of communicating and coping and behaving if you listen to the wonderful counselor, it is there for you. So what are you waiting for? What is holding you back? If you have never surrendered to Jesus before, maybe today is the day to do that. You can become, as Tim said, a son or daughter of God, of the wonderful counselor. You can have access to that right here today. Maybe today is the day. Or maybe today is the day for you to reset, to move deeper into your discipleship journey. Maybe today is the day to open your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit to his teachings and his ways, to model your life after him, to be the disciple that he has called you to be, to access his wisdom and his power and his strength and his peace and his discernment. He is with you from now the end of time now and forever all of this power in a baby born in a manger to ransom our lives to rescue our lives to redeem our lives to give us freedom to make us right with god to give us relationship with god you can make that decision today he is prince of peace alpha and omega christ Lamb of God, Redeemer, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Son of God, Son of Man, Light of the World, Wonderful Counselor, and He is inviting you, inviting you to encounter Him fully, inviting you to experience all that He is, and I'm telling you, I couldn't want more for you this Christmas than that. You have a joy and a hope that awaits you this Christmas. And his name is Jesus. And there truly, there truly is no other name.